welcome to Sam Culture. Oh, I fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we have an intro. Yeah, it's really warm in here. Welcome to STEM Culture Podcast, where we're beginning our second series, Work and Life and Balance. Today you'll be listening to Kaylee, that's me. And Danny. And Zach. We're taking on that infamous trio for the top of the new year, bringing it in with a convenient reminder to reset and rebalance. Today we take on work, everything from what goes on in the grad student's day to how we manage and try to optimize it all and make room for the rest of it. This episode goes out to all the Hermione Grangers out there who have to magically do it all, but without the actual magical powers. So what does work-life balance all mean? To me, it is a balance between work, of course, uh, personal, mental, social, and physical health. Anybody else have a contribution to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I have the, the same feelings. Um, and when I think about in, like my own interpretation of work-life balance, um, for me, that means... Um, for me to work productively, I also need to rest productively to make sure that I can balance the two of those things. Yeah, I think it's exactly what you guys are saying. It's the fact that we need to have all these components in our very complex lives, and they all need to be acknowledged and given space and more or less honored so that we can be complex, well-rounded humans and not overextend ourselves in any one direction. I'm just really bad at it. You're really bad. I am. Yeah, but, but you're still alive and you're still doing things. You know of. And you have. <laughs> oh God, he's a ghost. <laughs> okay, so that's our understanding of work-life balance. But I looked it up on Twitter. Well, there's like Twitter counters out there that will tell you how many times a hashtag has been used, usually within a certain number of days or up to a certain number of counts. And every single one that I checked for hashtag work-life balance maxed out the counters. So obviously people are talking about this, which either means it's working for a lot of people and so they're sharing their ideas, or it's not working for a lot of people and so they're lamenting the fact that hashtag work-life balance sucks. <laughs> but overall, I think you know even if you just do a cursory Google search, you find pages and pages and pages of articles written on this and people's approaches to this. So it's obviously a really popular concept. Why do you think work-life balance as an idea is so pervasive? Well, I think it's the idea that it's, it's a hard goal to attain. And I think part of that is because balancing the two looks different for different people. Um, and I think we're also always chasing it because you see someone that you think has a good work-life balance. And so you're like, oh, I, well, I want to do that. So how do I do that? And then maybe you try what they're trying and it fails I, I agree with that one, but I also think that it's one, it's a difficult goal to achieve in the first place. And that it's, to me, it seems nearly impossible in some cases. Like I have to balance it. And it's also kind of leaning towards that healthy end too. Like, you know, you need to be better. It's New Year's resolution time. You should be focusing on that. But then it's just, sometimes it seems like an impossible standard. So it's something you have to keep going back and forth on. So kind of what I'm hearing you guys talk about is this idea that work-life balance is this constant desire to like succeed, right? So what Daddy was saying is, oh, so-and-so has appears to have a really nice work-life balance. Like, I want to be successful like they are, so therefore it must be because they have their life in this potentially unattainable or unattainable to you in the way they're doing it or attainable in the way that they're doing it way. Uh, and one thing I think that really takes this idea of why we try to be so successful and we try to constantly push our lives into this balance 
um, and that talks about it really nicely was the BuzzFeed article, uh, the millennial burnout generation um, article that was published a couple of weeks ago. And we'll link that in the show notes so that you guys can read that if you haven't seen it yet. Um, but it was a really nicely written piece that for me personally caused a lot of feels. Have you guys read this article? Yes. Um, I read it and I'm so burned out I couldn't even finish it. It made so. me sad. Yeah. <laughs> I was already having a bad week and I was just like, I can't read the rest of this because it's just, I could identify with it in so many ways. It was a little too much for me. <laughs> <laughs> so burnout was first coined by a psychiatrist in 1974, uh, talking about, for people who may have not heard this term, which would be rather shocking if you haven't heard burnout by now. Um, it's talking about the term when people overextend themselves to the point that they're not even stressed out anymore. They just do not have any more to give, and yet they keep giving because there are certain pressures on them to keep moving forward. Um, and you're usually suffering in more places than just work. How do you guys think that the idea of burnout applies to work-life balance? I mean, I think it's just one and the same so what happens to me um, is I'll get really burned out on work and then I can't work anymore. And what ends up happening is I, I, I binge an entire show in one day or uh, like on Netflix or Hulu or whatever, or I will start like reading for fun. So I'll go through all of my favorite books and I'll just start reading them nonstop. And that's just my brain's way of telling me I'm burned out on work and I need more balance. Um, so I identify very much with burnout. I do as well. I've, I've had issues where I'll keep going and keep going and never stop. And then my kind of system recalibration is leaving town. Mm -hmm. I'm here almost every single weekend and I don't go anywhere. I just lock myself in my office or my apartment and work on stuff for the lab. So to me, it's it's an opportunity to reset and kind of unburn a match, essentially. Because I know that that article had like a burnout match on yeah. the front cover. And I was mm -hmm. just like, mm, can't undo that. Got to buy new matches. So you got to just replace everything. So I'll just leave town and try that. Do you have Next. any favorite places you like to go? Like, do you go really far away or do you just like go far enough? So my family lives in town. Or not in town. They live in uh, north of here, so about two hours away, so I can visit them. However, uh, one of the common practices that I do for it, and this is something we'll discuss later in balance, is I'll go to an escape room. Oh. So I still get to use the thinky-thinky bits of my brain, but uh, <laughs> it's more of a challenge versus... It's more of a fun challenge than an academic challenge, and so I've enjoyed just stepping away and doing that. I'm not an outdoorsy person. If that's not obvious, you, you can't tell that from my voice. But uh, yeah, I don't go outside that often. So because uh, that's a lot of the articles that I was looking at for this were like, go outside and recharge your batteries. I'm like, nah, pollen's out there. I don't want to go outside. <laughs> so when you're talking about those articles that you read about, you know, how people are suggesting to fix work like balance and how to like adjust to burnout, you guys read or heard about anything else that like really sticks out to you? I read an article, and it's from the Southern California um, University of Southern California, and it is a stretch too thin, as what it was described as. Five graduate student work-life balance tips. I have violated all of these. Uh, <laughs> so the first one is be honest with friends and family. Uh, I have mentioned before I have a hard time saying no. And so if I don't have time to do something, I'll still accept the burden of it and still try to do it. Uh, plan ahead. Don't wait till the last minute. That is like my family motto. I should put it on a crest. Uh, we, I'm notoriously last minute with some things 
And often I find that it's not really my fault on that. It's other people who are affecting my schedule because I didn't tell them no in the first place Mm -hmm. that they're going to come in and say, hey, I need this last minute. Whether that's home or at work. And you're like, oh, I guess I won't go outside today or see the sun. I got to finish this. Uh, This is not as bleak as it sounds. I don't like the sun, so it's kind of a bonus. Uh, (laughs) So uh, there's a make a flexible schedule. Don't overbook. Uh, For me, I, I overbook myself to the degree where I have appointment after appointment after appointment. And these guys know I'll come late to something or I'll go to a meeting where we're all together and be like, okay, you guys stay in chat. I got to go to another meeting. <laughs> See y'all later. And you come back to the meeting that we're still having. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have long meetings. Uh, get used to that in grad school. Uh, and then it says reevaluate your daily activities and responsibilities. I haven't done that in a while. I probably need a good self-reflection. Is that something y'all have done recently where you're like, oh, I've got to really do this. I can't do that other thing, though. If y'all had that situation, right? Yeah. You know, I'm always reevaluating what my priorities are. Um, with work-life balance. So um, sometimes for me, and and I've never really read anything on work-life balance, but for me coming into grad school, I knew very much I wanted to make grad school a Monday through Friday, nine to five kind of deal. And my advisor, I asked him what was his expectations. And he said, well, you know, treat it like a job, nine to five, Monday to Friday. And I was like, yes, yes, say more. And um, and then he was like, you know, it's really up to you. Sometimes you'll be here longer than that, depending on your goals, um, or you're going to not be here as long. And it's really up to you. And so for me, that worked really well because I don't like to be <laughs> micromanaged. And I manage myself pretty well. Um, but sometimes I'm like, you know, I actually do need to be in the lab a bunch. So Zach and I one summer spent, Mm. yes, (laughs) (laughs) it was our, our first, uh, my first full summer here as a grad student. And, uh, the two of us plus our friend Farzane were in our lab for, uh, 10 hour days, um, every day of the week for a full month. My hands still can't get out of the pipette position. Yeah. And it we had, like yes. <laughs> and, and we had certain goals. There was a grant deadline coming and, um, uh, we needed to get that done before classes started. Cause we all recognized that as soon as classes and teaching started up again, that we would not be able to finish this in time to mm-hmm. analyze the data to get the grant in. So, Reevaluating priorities is something I do frequently. And then also sometimes I become a workaholic like right now. And I'm, I'm kind of addressing that with myself and it's trying to pull back because for me, I'm, I start making mistakes when I, uh, I start making mistakes when I'm really burnt out <laughs> and making mistakes in a lab can be dangerous, you know? Yes. Um, and not only to me, but to others. And so, you know, once I can recognize that I'm having this burnt out feeling, um, I feel like I'm not paying as close attention and being as perhaps safe as I, I should be. Um, I really have to pull back. So I'm really trying to do that now. So this weekend that we're recording is a three day weekend. And this is the only kind of workish thing I'm doing. Nothing else besides this. Do you reevaluate your schedule frequently? Um, Yes and no. So we'll get to this later, but it was kind of once I started reassessing where I was spending my time um, that I realized I needed to be more, what's the word I'm looking for? Picky? Like mentally aware of like what I was actually doing with my time. Because I had a similar problem that Zach has where I say yes to a lot of things. Um, Things make sense and like this is really interesting. This is really exciting. This will help me with my career. This is something I'm passionate about. And I end up having four or five calendars 
that are all laying on top of each other that dictate my life for me. And that wasn't really where I wanted it to be. Um, I wanted to be more in control of it. So I started looking at where I was spending my time and what percentages of my time I was giving to certain things. Um, and that helped me reflect and be like, okay, not enough time is going here. I need to push more time in this other thing. Um, or I'm spending, you know, too much time on this per week. I can, I can divvy this up or take a week on, take a week off. You know, I really kind of think about that. It's definitely not a perfect process. And every, the tough part about being a grad student is every semester changes. I think this kind of gets into the idea of like the grad, a grad student work life, not like work and life, but like the work part of a grad student's job or career. Um, it's this idea that, you know, you have semester responsibilities that can change from, you know, even week to week, but typically, you know, you have a teaching load that changes and you might be teaching different days of the week and you might be taking classes that are different and at different times of the day. And your research priorities might shift from semester to semester, causing you to have to be in the lab. You know, maybe if you're doing a new thing, you need to be in the lab where you can be mentored, which means you have to somehow fit research in like a nine to five, if that's when your advisor will be around to help you. Mm. But for a, for a typical STEM student, I think those are kind of the big three rotating time strains in a week is research classes and teaching. Do you guys have any other major work components that should be included in that list? Writing. Writing. That's right. Lit searches. I'm really bad at that. Mm-hmm. Meetings, meetings. Meetings and seminars. Yep. I have meetings, teaching, research, writing, lit search, and then repeat. Because mm-hmm. that's all I do anymore. It's so weird to me because I'm like, like, I hear those and I'm like, oh, those are things on my calendar. But for some reason, they don't fall into things I like categorize. I actually acknowledge. Yeah. Like, oh, it's writing. Well, like, in that's my brain, that research. falls under research. Yeah. Um, so I guess it's, it's interesting to hear how people categorize their responsibilities and how far down the chain do you do sub-separate and does that help you to have more categories or does it help to keep things in a broader sense? Well, it helps me protect my time. So I kind of schedule out by semester for myself, but also for my lab mates. Um, and so I will say, okay, here are the times I'm writing so that I can protect that time. And then here are the times I'm doing lab work so that I can protect that time. Um, and then other meetings and other seminars. And it's all in an effort to protect the times so that other people can't take it from me. So that, you know, we, we talked a little bit about like how that, how your life changes on a semesterly basis, how we both kind of address our situations from a really broad perspective. Um, for people who may not yet be in grad school, Let's talk about what a work situation may look like for typical daily or weekly strain, just so we can get a better sense of what that that stressor or that strain feels like. I'll start off with my week. So it varies as you progress through your program. So for the first two years, I can say probably most of us are in classes. Mm -hmm. And then after that, you don't take classes anymore. Celebrate that. Enjoy it. Never take a test again, except it's all prelims or oral exams. So have fun with that. Uh, so, so, um, there's, there's a transition between being a student and being a researcher and a teacher. And that's something that a lot of us will hit teacher right when we start. Most STEM programs will have you teaching labs as soon as you start your career there. Um, the thing I've noticed is there's a transition of, you might have fewer responsibilities depending on what courses you're teaching. So I know that when I teach like a general chemistry course, it's a pretty quick go. There's stuff already prepared for me and it's ready to be just taught because there's like 50 sections of it and everybody's just got to go through it as quickly as possible. 
And then there's other courses that are uh, more in depth, maybe sophomore to senior level courses, and those require a lot more effort on my part. That's prepping solutions from a chemical perspective and doing all this extra work on top of teaching the lecture or teaching the lab and then t grading the assignment. So I think another thing, teaching, I would bulk together grading, like you were saying, what goes where. To me, grading could be both its own category because it takes so much time to do versus teaching. And then over time, you're just like Kaylee mentioned, once you have a grant, you don't do that for a while. And it's magical. Mm -hmm. And it's the best feeling ever when you're like, you mean I can just sit in a lab and do research or I can sit at my computer and write and look at data? That's what I dream about. <laughs> but like, So it's interesting you bring that up because like, even just like from a component of just work balance, not even you know, considering your balance outside of your work hours, for me, it's super weird to have taken away even like I'm okay with like not having classes because those were already pretty much a non-strain on my day they were really late at night it really didn't matter if you know they didn't affect my like typical working hours but having teaching kind of removed from my my research balance um, or trying to balance my research and my teaching it's it's good in that it allows me to do more research that's like an obvious time shift but I from like a mental perspective, the ba trying to balance now going long time, a long time without having success, you know, from a daily perspective. Okay. Well, I felt like I did a lot today, but then at the end of the week, you're like, Oh, well, I didn't get these three experiments done that I thought I was going to be able to. And then you look at your month and, Oh, well, okay. I thought this was going to happen, but then like my cell line got sick and I had to throw it away and start over. And so you start realizing that there's like this very long, arduous process that is research. And with teaching, even though it's really tough and it does take a lot of hours sometimes, depend, especially depending on the course you're teaching, it's so variable. Um, but it is kind of this instant gratification of at the very least, well, we got through another week. Like my students have learned another chapter. I have graded these papers. That's like something I can check off my list. It's not just this ongoing process. And so for me, it's really important that like my work day has moments of instant gratification because I'm not one of those researchers that loves the long haul. <laughs> uh, I love research for what it stands for, but I'm not necessarily so in love with it that I'm okay with just going months without a lot of progress or feeling the slippage and not like beating myself up about it. So it's important for me to have like other things that I consider work. So in a previous episode, Danny was talking about like an outreach organization that we were working on. And that has now become part of my work because it has now gotten a paid position. And so if I treat that as kind of my stand-in for teaching, where I get instant gratification from that because, okay, I completed a presentation. Okay, I sent the emails I needed to send. Okay, I've written the documents I need to. And so just even balancing your work responsibilities from a mental perspective, um, how, that, how that affects me. Mm -hmm. Um, and then for me, I'm in my fourth year and hoping to uh, graduate this year, as is Zach. And um, right now, um, I'm really lucky where I'm on a research assistantship, which means I'm not teaching. And I don't have classes. And so really, I just have lab work and writing. And for me, I really love that. It's not scary to me because I'm I'm pretty good about managing that time. And I have times, like I've mentioned already, that I write every day and that I do lab work. Um, ex except in the first week of classes when I have 15,000 meetings. So many meetings. <laughs> That's oh, just so this new meetings. semester woes. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, so for me, I am just so happy when really 
all I'm doing is lab work and writing. And for me, especially with the writing, I keep track of what I'm working on and how many hours I get done a week. So I can kind of total that up at the end and be like happy feelings about how I've progressed on that. Um, I can and I see can, how that would like it add to that instant gratification. Well, I put in this many hours this week. Yeah. Like, that's got to help you feel good because you I mean, measuring your progress like that. That's a really good idea. Yeah. And then for one, well, we can talk about this later, but I have semester goals too that I write down for the lab. Uh, well, actually it's not semester goals right now. It's like in the next two months, what do I want to, what do I have to get done so that I have all my data? And so having that in a written format makes me feel really good too. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's what, I, what it looks like for me right now. I kind of want to continue on that um, through the next question we have here because Danny created this really amazing document um, for our department that talks about the different requirements, demands, responsibilities, et cetera, and how they change through grad school. And so if you wouldn't mind kind of sharing why you created that document and how you think it is helping. So for me, I definitely, and I think a lot of people will identify with this, I will not be able to see the forest for the trees. That means I'm only able to see these really small details and I can't plan out beyond that. And I can't look at the big picture. And so to help me see the big picture, I thought, why don't I make a visual timeline? I'm also someone who's very visual. If I have a list of things, I just need to see it in a timeline um, if it's a chronological list. So I started making this timeline where I said, okay, so like year one and two, this is when people are getting adjusted to grad school. So what are some of the things um, at our university that they can take advantage of during this time so that they can set themselves up for success later on? So um, that was for year one and two. And then in the next part of the timeline is basically like three year three and four together. And in our um, in our program. Kind of end of year two is when we take our uh, written prelims and then the beginning of year three is when we um, are supposed to defend our proposal um, or um, other universities that might be kind of an oral defense of your proposal. Depends. Everyone has different names for it. It's ridiculous. Anyway, um, and so I wanted to make something visual for that too. You know, keep in mind that for this, there are some rules in the grad handbook that you need to pay attention for to reach this timeline and that timeline. And you should start writing at this point if you haven't already, because if you want to get out on time, (laughs) you need to have submitted a paper and sometimes papers in review, depending on kind of what your specialty is, what department you're in, um, what science you do, um, can take much longer than others. And so if you want to get out of here, so our university gives us five years. So if you want to get out of here in five years, then uh, you need to really think ahead of time. So the whole goal of the timeline was how do I see the big picture and keep it in mind so that I can be successful over the long term? Yeah, absolutely. And as we talk about, you know, how we kind of consider this change of grad school, I think it would be really interesting to promote a conversation uh, with our listeners about how their programs might be different. Um, Because I know a lot of different programs have a lot of variability. When I was applying, for example, like one of the schools I was applying to straight up didn't have teaching requirements. Like they would not let you teach because they were such a rigorous university that like didn't want you teaching. I don't know. Um, and then another one like didn't let you teach in your first year, but then you were expected to teach like years two through four. Mm-hmm. So it'd be really interesting to hear what people's alternate program timelines look like. Um, Cause I know there's a lot of variability between schools. Oh, definitely. Then even departments here, y'all have way different the 
requirements than I do. So I have three oral exams to graduate. Oh, gosh. And I have um, pre or entrance exams as well. So we have to pass ACS exams in order to remain in the program. What is ACS? American Chemical Society. Oh, no, 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 no. So we have to pass three of those, including the one in our division. So wait, you guys are like real intense grad students. Like, I feel like I've been skating a little bit, (laughs) but like y'all are legit serious. It's very serious. And I think to even that out, they pulled back on our coursework. Okay. So I know like in the environmental science department, they have to take six or more classes and then take written exams on those their second year i don't do that i have an oral exam instead on my second year i have one on my third year fourth year write a report and let your committee know how you're doing fifth year hopefully defend get the fuck out of here yeah that's really (laughs) interesting and like we know people in like a psychology program that they don't actually do the the equivalent of like their oral prelims until their fourth ish year Mm -hmm. uh which is crazy to me because that doesn't seem like a proposal it seems like a here's what i've been doing i'm halfway or more done with my phd which is weird because they actually have like real data or like papers published Mm -hmm. yeah before they've even proposed yeah so it's it's really interesting the different dynamics and i don't even know anything about the tem part of stem and how you know math or engineering or you know computer science people how they go about it either like i have no clue so if you want to educate us hit us up on our twitter I think the best thing we could say here is if you have something that worked really well for you, this would be the time to share it. There are a lot of students that struggle with funding or managing their time and everything like that. So reach out to us and by proxy, reach out to everyone else and say, hey, hey, you're in history or you're in chemistry or whatever field you're in. I found this grant. It really helped when I was struggling with finances or anything along that lines or helped my research. You should apply to it too. Cycle start now or anything like that. So share that information with others and us and we'll be glad to disperse it to them as well. Yeah, having a better, I think that's exactly it. Having a better understanding of how people in other places do their grad student work can help other people Mm -hmm. by default. Because universities have different resources. For example, ours will provide multiple ways to find funding. Mm -hmm. However, there's sometimes a paywall between that and not every university is going to cover that. And there are some that are free that could easily get to. For example, UCLA has GRAPES uh, for funding. So I would suggest you take a look at those. I don't know what GRAPES stand for. They don't tell you. I was going to say, like, does it involve wine? I it, it might. I don't know. I've looked and it's like, we call it GRAPES. And then that's the only explanation <laughs> they give. There's no other, like, because it's an acronym for No, it's just that like we call it GRAPES. So take a look at that if you're interested in finding funding. It's free, it's open, and it's available. And there's some great stuff for ABD, anything else like that that you're looking for. So with all of that on our plate, and Zach kind of hinted to this earlier, um, sometimes it's really hard to say no. Well, the way I've been dealing with that lately is I'll say yes, but only if I'm paid. And then immediately when I say that only if I'm paid part, people go, whoa, I'm never asking her for anything again. Um, and Or occasionally it works. <laughs> um, so that's how I've been dealing with it. Don't not plan until my... last minute and be better about that. That's right. what I would have to say. And I can't talk because I, I, I need no tattooed on my arm so I'd remember to say it because I don't. Ever. Yeah. But then you have this this great new technique you've been using where instead of saying no, you just avoid people, which I think is I great. <laughs> it I helps spent, being nocturnal. It helps being nocturnal. I work very late at night trying to avoid other people. But my other thing is, is I've gotten to the point where I have meetings Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and I teach Monday, Wednesday. And so now I'm like, you know, I looked at my calendar after this horrible week of like 15 meetings. I looked at it and I was like, oh, 
I have nothing on Tuesday or went Thursday. <laughs> I'm staying home and riding, and yes. no one can bother me. Hey. And I think the one thing I'll have to think or work on on that is I love my phone and I love emails because mm-hmm. it's like regular mail, but it's faster. And I love being <laughs> able to be like, ooh, somebody's talking to me. I'm like, oh, that's an ad, delete. Like, there's some satisfaction of getting an email. I don't know if it's just the nerd in me who's like, it's so fast, it's so magical. Uh, but I think for me, I have to even disconnect the internet on my computer hmm. and be like, no, I'm not using this right now. If it's something I need to do, I'll write it down and I'll look it up later when I have a moment. Or I'll tap up my phone on Do Not Disturb so that nothing vibrates, buzzes, or distracts me while I'm in this zone. Have you ever... Sorry. Go ahead. Have you ever tried using... um, So there's some apps out there. One's called Forest that will block all that stuff for you. And then if you like just pick up your phone because you're so used to doing it to check it, Forest will be like, are you sure you want to do this? I have the app installed. I didn't use it. Another thing that I've liked, and this is some useful focusing tools, is called Stay Focused. It's a Chrome browser extension. Um, They have what I like to use is called the nuclear option, (laughs) which is if you select it, it locks your browser from a specific list of websites. So like I always put in like YouTube. um, I'll leave Google Scholar open and stuff like that. But like YouTube, Netflix, Hulu and all that stuff, like I'll force it to block it. And then if I go to that website, it's like, nah, you can't be here right now. <laughs> uh, it has bit me in the butt because I accidentally blocked Google. <laughs> <laughs> but then it comes to that whole, okay, I need to lock this down. I need to stop using the internet. Because Google leads you to some really weird places. And it also really is good at distracting me. And so this is nuclear. Don't focus on anything else. Only do whatever you're doing without the internet. And it prevents me from unplugging it. But if I need like a program, like say we use a... Uh, cloud service to store all of our documents so if i'm writing i need that cloud service to function Mm -hmm. so that i can back up my files as i'm writing just in case something goes wrong and this is an opportunity to keep me from being distracted from everything else so um one thing that i wanted to talk about was the 40-hour work week and as grad students i don't think we work that little amount every week correct me if i'm wrong no i don't think that's a false statement uh, uh, Danny may be better about it. Danny may be better because that's that's one of the things you mentioned earlier that I really wanted to focus on too was if you're just now starting, have that conversation with your PI and say, what is a work week to you? Because mm-hmm. some of them will say, I don't care when you're here as long as you get something done. Give me your phone number. I'll call you if I have a problem. And you can just go home and tiddly dee all you want wherever you want to go work in a Starbucks, whatever. But some people, and there are some people in my department, that their advisor expects them in their lab from 9 o'clock to 9 o'clock. Dinner time is fine. They are allowed to leave for food. And they're expected to work on Saturdays. And I might be making that harsher than it actually is. I don't know. I met somebody who had that work Mm -hmm. expectation. And like their week off is Sunday. Or their day off is Sunday. And they don't have to come in. But most of the time they're in because they start an experiment and they have to finish it. Mm -hmm. But those guys, and this is the benefit, is they're guaranteed holidays. So if they're like, oh, well, MLK is coming up. Oh, well, I mean, it's going to be later than when we're releasing this. But you have that day off. You earn that. You've been working here. You've got it. Spring break. You actually get spring break. Have a week. Go. So you have to outline that with somebody. And that's something that I find very important to do early on. Establish that timeline as soon as you can. But in the terms of 40-hour work weeks, we get a conversation about how much time we should be spending in the lab, teaching, and everything when we start. So our classwork and research is 40 hours a week. Anything additional should be about 20 hours. So we're expected to spend about 20 hours total teaching, whether that's in the lab, grading, or preparing 20 hours. So you're looking at a 60-hour work week. 
Does anybody else feel that's very similar? Not looking at Danny because she <laughs> has time management skills. I think for our department, the teaching requirement is 15 hours, um, slightly less, but depend it, it wildly varies depending on where you're teaching. Freshman is probably closer to 15, but some of the upper levels can take more than the 20. Mm-hmm. So you're probably you're probably spot on with that 20 estimate. Yeah. Yes. When I and I don't want to make it out like I'm I'm perfect. I'm absolutely not. But I do. I think it's the way I categorize stuff. So mm-hmm. some of the things I do that are meaningful to me um, outside of like my PhD. So uh, this our podcast. I don't consider that work. Right. I consider that as an extracurricular. Um, but anyways, I'm probably am lying to myself about how many hours a week I'm working. It's just different kinds of work, right? Like it's, yeah. it's how do you exactly what we were talking about before? Like how do you subcategorize things? And yeah. I do the same thing. Or if it's not applicable to my PhD goal, mm-hmm. it is a separate thing. Like yeah. that's not what I consider work. Yeah, that's what I consider career goals or career planning or networking or like all of these other gray space things that are still part of my eventual work but like not immediately yeah so on that topic you said that if it's applicable to your phd Mm -hmm. do you consider teaching your that your responsibility towards your phd other than it's a source of funding and i understand that Mm. is it part of your phd so i'm based on how i have in the past categorized it it lives in a separate calendar like I have my calendar for my life, I have a calendar for my lab, and I have a calendar for teaching. So because of the way I would handle that, I think no. Um, when I I was not time tracking when I was teaching um, for very long, and so but it did get tracked into a separate column outside of work. So I would say yes, I did treat teaching as not separate as like it's not work, but like as if I had a second job. Like mm-hmm. I'm working my PhD and I'm working as a TA. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't money. work, and I didn't work beyond teaching. So, or like teaching was part of my forty-hour work week. Okay. But so, then, I, so you, you integrated know, it. Yeah. Okay. But then there would be other times, like during the summers, where I would just be working my ass off getting data because then research took up more of that forty hours. And our mm-hmm. teaching responsibilities get a little more laxed in the summer. I don't right. think we mentioned that earlier, but they do. Yeah. Uh, so. One survey from The Atlantic found in 2014 that uh, most employees accomplish their work, or sorry, uh, a survey found that the employees only spend about 40% of their time on actual primary duties. Mm-hmm. The rest of it, they're just messing around. Solitaire. Solitaire. <laughs> Pinball if you're old school. Uh, so uh, I, I found this as an interesting t- statistic because I feel... I will admit there's times where I'm like, oop, this YouTube video is funny and I'm on lunch. I'm going to watch it. And then I'll get into a rabbit hole and stick there for a little <laughs> bit. But then in my mind, that guilt kicks in later and going like, you weren't there today. Mentally, you were watching stupid cat videos. You should get back to work. And so mm-hmm. I'll go into the lab after like seven o'clock and be like, no, I got to do something today. Mm-hmm. And so there's this interesting shift in what is a work week. Yeah. And in the 1998 paper state that 100 years ago, workers clocked an average of 10 hours a day, six days a week. And that they rarely had a day to themselves because they would be working Monday through Saturday. And then Sunday they had church. Right. And so that was your opportunity. You had to go to church. You never had a day to yourself. So um, one person who really encouraged this shift, and I'll try to put citations for this on our page, uh, was Henry Ford. Because it was beneficial for him one to have his employees who were functioning properly but also he noted that if they were out and about for two days on the weekend they could at least spend money on his products or anything else so it's an (laughs) economic boost at that point so what a businessman 
Yes, what very much a businessman. So currently we work about four more weeks a year than we did in 1979 in the U.S., a whole extra month. Uh, and then oh, another interesting statistic is overworked overtime employees raises the rate of a mistake and a safety mishap by 61%. I'm not surprised. And I completely agree with that statistic as I have worked really late at night and I've dropped something. I could correct it at that point, but if it was something that I wouldn't have, I probably would have broken down in the lab and just be like, mm, light it on fire. It's time to restart. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. um, I mean, Danny mentioned that earlier too, like when she was experiencing feelings of burnout, mm-hmm. she noticed her work suffered. Oh, and yeah. it's very common. And a lot of them have even shown that you have lowered of cognitive performance scores when you're overworked or you're not really doing anything more than 40 hours a week, or you're not even doing your main primary duties. So I feel that it's, it's very ineffective to work too hard. And this is more along the terms of balance and life. But I feel like this is something that you could consider when you're working is, am I functioning at peak capacity? And there's only so much caffeine you can consume before it kills you. Mm-hmm. It's a very high LD50, but you should be aware of that. Fucking nerd. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing too with like these work weeks and the amount of time, um, y- you know, it's not only us the graduate students that are putting in all this time and like you know potentially overworking ourselves but it's also the advisor like we've kind of talked about if they have a lot of expectations and they're putting a lot of pressure they could potentially be putting a lot of pressure on you as well like zach said a comment like okay well i was i was checked out at work today and so i need to go back in and i need to work well first of all i don't hardly ever feel like that and then i actually think about like well how much time was i actually spend like this whole conversation is making me rethink my life i'm so sorry (laughs) because like i I, I time track where it's like okay well i spent time physically in lab today but like how much of that time was actually spent being productive and can i count that and then I feel really bad about how many hours I'm actually putting into my work. And then oh, no. people start thinking like, oh, Kaylee works so hard. It's like, I don't. <laughs> if I actually track productive hours, like, dude, like, no, like, I really like, this is a problem. Would and, you say 48% of it is actually productive? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, oh, I'm sure we're going to have a whole new episode about just imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um but it's very difficult for me personally to hear com- like hear conversations about like how I spend my time because I consistently feel that I present like I'm very busy. And this kind of, I mean, I, I've heard this before, like looking busy, fake busy, where you feel really busy, but then at the end of the day, like you've done nothing because you just kept doing a little thing. So you, oh my God, I checked email 15 times today. Fuck emails. I like, can't. I don't know. I'm kind of like, where's that? Like, I like getting emails because I like... I feel loved when I get an email. Don't judge me. Stuff. I don't well, know. I don't... So when I get them, that's fine. But then if I have to respond and send out emails, then all of a sudden I've sent out a million emails in one day and my brain is like... You could put it through a sieve. It's so mushy. I'm sure I like wouldn't survive as... Like, my brain would not handle it well because I don't really like monotony forever. But, like, there's a lot of days where I'll be, like, spend doing administrative tasks, like, sending emails. I'm like, what if I just become a secretary? I like emails. I like doing administrative things. The way I see emails is if it's a good enough email, at least it wasn't a meeting that I had to meet in person for. True. Because if you're like, wow, there's so much information in this. This is really useful. At least I didn't have to go somewhere and sit down and have a 15-minute buffer conversation, then a 15-minute nosy conversation of what's going on, and then finally get to the topic at hand. Yeah. And then wasted it. And it's like, oh, this is a beautiful email. Like, Well-crafted. So one reason I think I, 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 didn't, I don't know if I like just feel unproductive, because in my work, I, like, am, I result in weird amount of time. 
in my 40 hour work week, I always have a portion of that time that is just awkward. Like, oh, I'm doing a centrifuge spin for three minutes. What do I do for three minutes? You get on your phone. Yeah. You don't, right? you don't do anything. You just right. Wait. But like, then I'm like, oh God, like then I'm on my phone. And then like the centrifuge beeps and I'm like deep in Instagram. <laughs> and I'm like, this was bad. Cause like, uh, there's a person I listen to, um, Tom Frank from college info geek that talks about like good distractions and like good mental breaks. And he always says like, don't go on your phone because then you get lost in these things. Like if you're working, like if you're writing and you need to take a mental break, don't check your email. Don't go on your phone, like get up, take a walk, like do something that has like a concrete time. Or like if there's one email you needed to answer, like that's your one break, like do something concrete. But that's why I think I feel really like, that's not only the reason I feel impostery. Um, but I think it's because I spend my time in these weird amounts of time. Like those three minute runs are like, I have five minutes before class. What do I do? Yeah. Um, and so I end up with these awkward amount of times where I feel like I'm not being productive. And I've heard like time blocking helps with that, but it's inevitable. You're going to just have like awkward time. Yeah. I want to say two things. One is let's define imposter syndrome ah. uh, for anybody that doesn't know what that is. So uh, imposter syndrome is maybe from the outside, people see you as very uh, productive and successful and all this stuff. And when they tell you that internally, you're just like, wow, they don't really know me. I'm not Liar. successful at all. <laughs> I'm not good at this. I don't know anything about this subject really. And you feel like an imposter. So um, the second thing I wanted to say is that if, uh, if you're starting to feel, listeners, if you're starting to feel a little imposter syndrome as you're listening to this, I want to assure you, we are all disasters um, on this Speak podcast. I'm glorious. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure you're the first one to say that you did not have your ish together. Oh, I mean, yeah, but it's all about confidence, guys. <laughs> if I lie to myself, I might believe it one day. <laughs> yeah, we're not here to tell you that we are perfect because we are not. So um, you're in good company, but also we believe in you and we love you. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this that we've talked about so far has been here's things that are out there. Here are some of the conversations that have been happening that we're just trying to combine into one vocal notebook, if you will. Okay, so we were talking about imposter syndrome and why you might not feel that you are successful in managing your work and balancing it. And so one of the things that I, in my researching this episode, came across um, was this concept of the urgency effect and how it can play into reasons why you might struggle, especially as a graduate student. Um, I feel like this is a potentially very applicable concept. So the urgency effect is when our brains tend to prioritize immediate satisfaction over long-term rewards. And we talked about this, right? This is why I really needed to have other projects when my teaching went away, because research is that long-term reward that takes months or years to complete. Um, a PhD takes bare minimum four years. Like I've never heard maybe three if you're like a superstar. Well, in the, in the, or a different country. Maybe also that. Yeah. The UK, Australia, three oh, or four my. years is kind of still superstar status. <laughs> um, but anyway, so this, this idea of urgency effect came from a February, 2018 publication from Zhu Yang and C. Um, we'll link that out also. Um, and they, looked at subjects that were more likely to perform urgent, smaller tasks that had a deadline than more important tasks without an immediate time constraint. 
even if the option to perform the urgent task was objectively worse than performing the larger one. So the researchers in their uh, publication were talking about how people uh, are choosing to perform these urgent tasks with short completion windows rather than these larger outcomes because important tasks can be really difficult and the goal is further away. And these urgent tasks have this time pressure, which is why a lot of people tend to work well. They say they work well under pressure because they have that urgency effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and they get an, the, the payoff is obviously more immediate because they've started working on this closer to the deadline, which means that when they complete it, as the deadline needs to, they get, the, they get that payoff and that satisfaction a lot faster because they've shoved their work closer to that deadline and that, that goal. Um, so... The, the point is, even if we know we have a larger, less urgent task um, that is vastly more consequential, like completing a PhD, <laughs> uh, we will instinctively choose to do smaller urgent tasks, like sending an email. And so this is like a, a cognitive problem that people all suffer from. Is this an example of when like, you have to study for an exam and instead you clean your entire house? Exactly. Because okay. you feel really good about cleaning your house. Um, but then you've, you've forced off. I feel like you just called me out and you didn't even know you did it. I feel like I a lot of apartment like a crazy person. No, but I've heard this a lot. Like on every person I've talked to, like your house has never been cleaner than when you have a Something project. Something to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or like with proposals until I was really fortunate to have my mother show up and help me survive through that. But until she was here, I was like, oh my gosh, like I just convinced myself that my mom coming was so important, but even though she was here to like help me study and like live while I was doing my proposal, I was like, oh my gosh, like my mom's coming. I have to clean my house. Like I can't have her see. And she was literally like, Kaylee, I don't like, I'm literally here to just help you. I will clean your house because that's what she was like here to do. Cause my mother is a freaking angel. Yeah. Every time I remember, and I, cause I think, I don't know, you don't know how often I think about <laughs> how sweet it was that your parents came mm-hmm. to help during that time. Um, and I was a disaster during mine. Yeah. Um, but I did have to fight that instinct of like, must clean entire house. I was like, no, must live in dirty den of iniquity and instead study, 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 study until mm-hmm. it's done. I clean my desk a lot more than anything when I don't want to do something. I was like, mm, I got to lice all this. This needs to be sterile. Well, it's, it's a workspace. So yes. like, of course you have to have the best optimal workspace. I heard my lab mate <laughs> sneeze. It must be clean. <laughs> so that's just one of the many challenges is suffering from this urgency effect. And I think acknowledging it can be really helpful is like, you know, knowing that, okay, I'm distracting myself because I'm looking for this payoff. And so you can find other ways that are helpful. So one thing that I, I read was a helpful tip for people who have to do a lot of reading. You know, you like have us, you go through an article and you just highlight random spots. And every time you hit a highlight, like you give yourself a, like a skittle or you something. candy on your paper. It looks so delicious. Yeah. And so like it's, it's giving yourself these little rewards that help take big, long projects and break them down or um, micro-tasking. Uh, so people who write to-do lists, this is also, I think, something I got from College Info Geek. Um, if you have a to-do list, like if you're trying to write a paper, literally write the checklist, open computer, check done, nice. Nice. Open word, nice. Save file, cool. Like you set these like ridiculously small tasks that help your brain get into the progress of like working on whatever you're trying to work on, which helps you sustain progress because you are overcoming this urgency effect. Hmm. You're giving yourself shorter and shorter deadlines, but they're all in progress. And then 
your brain, you get into what's called the flow, right? Where you start working really well, your brain is in deep thought. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but when you get into that flow, but like getting there is really tough. Um, but that's not the only challenge, you know, to getting it done is fighting yourself. Um, there are other, you know, we're talking about work-life balance, right? Where those are challenges to getting your work done, but life is not a separate entity. Yeah, it's just a separate episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think we would be remiss not to at least mention and acknowledge that there are, you know, these these subpopulations of grad students that have unique challenges. Yeah, and so it goes, I mean, you have children or you have a partner or maybe your family's sick or you're an underrepresented minority and, and doing these work items that we're talking about, you're getting blockaded or maybe you have a disability or a learning difference or uh, maybe you have a super long commute from school because you had another career and now you live close-ish to the school that you got into, but it's a 45-minute commute each way, um, et cetera. We love you all, and you can do it. Yeah. And make sure you listen to STEM culture on your long commutes. <laughs> but we really, like we said, these things will be talked about more in depth, but we just would be remiss if we did not bring it up at least a little bit in this episode. Yeah, well, it's why we have our in-STEM episodes as well. Yes. So hopefully y'all listen to our last in-STEM episode. Yeah, and if you feel like you fall, you know, you have things to really talk about. Like, let's say you listen to our work-life balance, and you're like, oh my gosh, like I really think I could provide an interesting story of how... I have these you know, unique set of challenges and this is how I integrate them. I'm sure it's helpful to people out there to hear people's stories of those things. So we would love to have you um, share your story with us. Mm -hmm. So with this episode on work, something I keep in mind is we have so many things on our plates. So how on earth are we really supposed to deal with all these you know, we're supposed to be lab techs and writers and teachers and students. And then we're also supposed to learn how to conduct ourselves professionally uh, during our PhDs and after our PhDs, not to mention we have to find a job after our PhD. So, oh, and also, you know, publishing <laughs> so that we can graduate on time. So this next uh, section here is about our specific time management techniques. And you'll notice each of us have very different techniques. So we've sprinkled them in so far. Mm -hmm. um, but I think this is going to be the, hopefully the most helpful portion where we're giving people what is working for us and other options out there. So since I'm already talking, I'll just keep going. So I, I mentioned up until this point that I have started time blocking. Uh, so I use an Excel sheet um, that I got from Tori, uh, which is a woman that works next door to me. Um, she started doing time blocking and she was doing it on Google Docs because she liked that she could access it anywhere. But then I'm me, so I have to make everything extra, <laughs> which means that things are color-coded uh, color based on what I put into the box. And you can't do that kind of conditional formatting in Google. So I was doing it in Excel. Uh, so like if I look at it, everything that says like it's a lab activity color codes yellow and everything that's for the podcast is pink, like all these different things. And then at the bottom, um, I will even then uh, have taken, you know, the kind of the format that was given to me and I've adjusted it a little bit where, okay, things that have these tags count as work. And so then I can calculate how many hours in doing work or doing SciComm or doing teaching or like having all of these different categories in my life. And then per week, I can look at the percentage of time I spend doing work things, doing personal things, sleeping, <laughs> um, which has also been really cool. So that's been really helpful. Um, I've mentioned that I have Google calendars and 
uh, I've heard Zach mention that he lives and breathes by his calendar. Um, I've made the joke that I schedule my friends, but I actually do. Um, <laughs> like yesterday I spent time with a friend and she's straight up in my calendar. Um, even though like we made the plan kind of last minute, she still went in the calendar. Um, and I have multiple calendars. I have ones, you know, that for our email, um, we have a calendar, you know, a Google calendar for STEM culture and Brooke is really amazing and puts calendar events on that. And so that gets added to my calendar. And then I've got my work calendar that has all of my seminars and stuff on it. Um, but it helps me make sure I don't forget about events um, and that I am blocking my time at least somewhat appropriately. Um, and then I've recently started doing um, calendar planning with my PI, which is super cool, um, where I'll send him at the beginning of every month a physical calendar that I've written experimental goals at the bottom. Like, okay, so we have this paper that we're trying to work on. We have these figures that need immediate attention. So I'd write out kind of the goals for each of those experiments, like the big thought process. And then I'd fill in the experiments. Um, you know, on the first day, I'm going to grow my cells. And I think that, you know, it's going to take me a week and a half until I know that they're good and they're clean. I can't do anything until after that. And then maybe I can do some like molecular work. So I'll just throw in exactly what the experiments are and then how long I think they're going to take by just like drawing an arrow. And then I send that to him and I'm like, hey, does this look like I'm on track? Do you think this is also feasible? Because I realized in my first year that I was getting really upset because I was having all these new things on my plate and I was trying to also do all this research because I'm a grad student now and I have to do all this research. But it took me forever to do anything because I was new and I didn't know how this lab worked and I was getting super upset. Um, and I had a conversation with my, my boss and he's like, yeah, that's normal. You need to stop thinking you can do all these things in a week. Um, then I'm like, oh, well, now I don't have all these responsibilities. I'm just researching. So then I thought I could like triple my workload. Also not true. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like experiment cells will still grow at the rate that they will grow. Um, rather if you or, believe in them. I try. I talk to them and sometimes I sing to them, not when they're out in the environment, um, <laughs> when they're safely somewhere else and they're covered because... Don't breathe on yourselves. Yeah, don't breathe on yourselves. <laughs> they're so finicky. Um, but, you know, getting a better idea of how long things take um, already is becoming a bit of a conundrum. Um, but having that as a tool to have these conversations with my PI has been real helpful. So those are kind of the big three, I think, in the ways that I track my time. And I have a follow-up question for you. Yeah. For the time blocking, how do you use that information to help you? So this kind of again ties back into my like imposter syndrome. So I realized like I've spent too much personal time this week. Like, okay, I'm not reading articles because I spent three hours on my couch watching Netflix. So it's, it's having a balance. Yep. 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 I mean, it's, it's, a way for me to not just feel guilty without a basis. Like if I can have a like actual number in front of me, I'd be like, Oh, okay. Like I'm not just thinking I'm not doing enough for me. There's like, statistical evidence. There's like actual numbers enough. here. And then I can make a better decision. Like I can try for a number next week, like having an actual goal. So one of the things we might talk about, well, we will just talk about it now smart goals. Mm-hmm. So they are specific, measurable, attainable, relevant and time-based. So for me, like if I wanted to big picture incorporate more lab work or like spend more time doing lab activities or reading, like I consider reading articles as part of my research. So like that could be something. So like specific goals is increase the, or decrease the amount of personal time I spend in a week by 2%. 
And then I can actually see that because I can measure it on my time, like time tracking chart. And I can, I think that's attainable because I'm like, okay, in the last week, this is how much I spent doing it. Well, in the week before I was really productive and this is approximately how much personal time I had. Pick a number between there. It's, it's attainable. It's obviously relevant to my life because I'm trying to become a better grad student and actually like do the thing. <laughs> and it's, it's time, time based because it, I give myself a week to do it. Um, so that's one way in which I think it's helpful. It also helps me like just know if I'm sleeping enough. So like just knowing that like, okay, if I'm, cause I'm really trying to be more consistent, like going to bed every at the same time. And I have like an alarm on my phone, mm-hmm. but to like, to be able to look at it through a week and like see like the variability in like where I'm actually going to bed yeah. and when I'm waking up, it's helpful for me. Like you are a visual person. This has kind of taken it and made it a visual confrontation but like not in a bad way just like i have to literally be like confronted and like reckon with this is how i'm spending my time do i like it do i not like it Mm -hmm. okay so i uh, as kaylee mentioned use my calendar um i schedule pretty much everything for my day mainly meetings and anytime he says can i chat with you about that it goes in the calendar even if it's friends I, i schedule friends too no judgment that's that's how i've managed my time is putting it in a calendar and then when i realize i don't have something there that's when I go, oh, I should be doing something else. I get distracted and I need to, that's where I see, I might need to start time blocking everything. I'm like, oh, well, I should be doing this right now. I have a free moment. I should be doing this. And then maybe structuring it more around like, oh, well, you need to get here at nine o'clock during the day and leave at six and then maybe come back later. Hopefully not because that's already a full day's work. But if I don't get anything done, there's that guilt that sets in. And so I too have had stress dreams. I've been reorganizing things in my sleep and I don't know why. Hmm. And I don't know what I'm organizing, probably a paper or something like that. But me, from from this conversation right now, I see that I really need to do better at time management. I need something to say, hey, stop messing around on the internet and do your job. Hmm. Or do something like I have... I'm not, it's not a fear of writing. It's a loathing of it. And I don't I don't want to do it because I know that this is kind of my starting point. I'll get better at it. But I feel like I'm nothing's good enough. And that's a whole nother conversation. That's a whole episode. Or to be fair, podcast. writing is never good enough. You it just get to a point where enough. you're like, I think this Screw is it, done. Submit it. And, so, <laughs> and that's where I'm at. It's like I keep changing and I keep changing. And then it feels like I don't go anywhere. And then I'm like, well, then I'm not going to spend time on that anymore which is the mistake I've been making recently. So Mm. don't do that. Spend time on stuff. Yeah, and when you get to that kind of brick wall on writing, send it to somebody, a lab Mm -hmm. mate, a friend. A stranger. Um, Put it on your calendar. Even your parents. They might be like, "Uh, I actually was able to follow up until this point, and then I couldn't, your methods didn't make any sense to me, which for parents might be okay. But they might be like, you know, you lost me here. And that they can really help with kind of clarity. Uh, so <laughs> that's, that's something that I've noticed now is that I don't have the right focus on my own stuff. And I, I do block everything, but it's not enough. Mm-hmm. And so I need to have somebody. I, I've told my lab mates, I had a sign next to my desk that says, I have blocked this time for writing. But I know I am very bad at doing that. And mm-hmm. so underneath it, it says, if you find me distracted, throw something at me. They've only done it twice. <laughs> and I gave them all um, either tennis balls or stress balls so they Ooh. could throw them at me. Oh, tennis ball could hurt, though. I need the encouragement. <laughs> <laughs> Negative reinforcement for Zach. <laughs> there you go. So, yeah, so and how do you manage it, Danny? Okay. So um, 
about a year ago, I started, uh, it's not like I was purposefully looking for this kind of stuff um, to make my time management better, but I just happened to start listening to some podcasts and one of them in particular, which is the Startup Scientist by Dan Quintana. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, it there hasn't been any updates for about a year, but there's a lot of content there and he talks very much about workflow and how you can really structure your time when you're at work to be super efficient. And he's found that he can really do no more than five hours of concentrated work in a day. And that's to do with, um, you know, he has other meetings and stuff he has to go to, but it's also just how much he can physically handle in a day. And so I thought, huh, well, like, let me see if I can try out some of these techniques he talks about. And I find them all incredible, maybe not all of them, but I find many of them very, very useful. Before you get into that, can you define what concentrated work actually like what is what is the uh, Dan Quintana talking about when he means concentrated work oh I don't know if that's the term he used how, um, how are you interpreting that just so we, we have a very clear understanding yeah so it's where you're you're maybe you're at your computer or I don't know if you're doing lab work but when you're working that is all you are doing okay. so if you're at your computer and you're supposed to be writing that is all you're doing you're not on your phone you're not on your email you're not doing anything else but focusing on writing uh, as an example. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just wanted to make sure that that was like clear before we heard yeah, these thanks. awesome tips that are sure to come. Yeah. So uh, one of the techniques he talks about um, that is pretty uh, popular is the Pomodoro technique. And mm. so this technique is basically you're like, I need to work on this thing and I'm going to work on it for 25 minutes. That's kind of the, the standard time. And so you literally set up a timer and you work for 25 minutes. And then once that timer goes off, you take a five minute break. Um, and then maybe you can do several sessions of a Pomodoro. So maybe you do 25 minutes, five minute break, 25 minutes on five minute break, and then maybe one more, and then you take a longer break. Then it really helps you focus. And it, it, I've found it for me, it helps me focus a lot. Um, but 25 minutes is just an example time. So in my writing groups, um, we do 50 minutes at a time. Cause for me, 25 minutes writing, that's right when I've hit my groove and I don't want to stop yet. Because there's other people in the room and we've, like, I cannot sometimes work in my lab. Mm -hmm. I have many lab mates and it's none of their faults, but sometimes it just gets really busy in there. And so I really need to leave if I'm going to get any kind of writing done. So for my writing groups, I leave that room. I've reserved a room somewhere else and I meet like-minded people that also want to write during that time and then we do the 50 minutes on 10 minutes off 50 minutes on again does it also help to have people who are working yes. near you yes. I found that that I had a roommate once who whenever she was around and was working I found myself to be infinitely more productive because yeah like, oh well, she's she's working I she's making also... me look bad I got fired <laughs> <laughs> well I think a little bit of it really could be like oh gosh well they look like they're really focused so I really shouldn't like I want to check this thing that is not related to my writing but I won't so that has worked for me really well and I did start keeping track of how much writing I was doing and on what topics or maybe what papers so I could keep track of how many hours I gave a paper or an application so that I can feel good about myself essentially. Are there any other reasons you keep track of that other than that gratification? No. Okay. Just, I mean, it also might be helpful to be like, you know, on average, this is how much writing time it takes me to turn out a paper. So like the next time your PI asks you to write, you can be like, okay, I anticipate it taking me this many hours, which could be really helpful 
you know, if you're trying to produce multiple papers, you can give them a more accurate timeline knowing how many hours it took you. Yeah. And that's, that's a really fantastic point. I've only been keeping track for a a semester. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I, I write every two hours every day, Monday to Friday. Um, and there's sometimes when other things come up, but I, I protect that time like crazy. Um, and if you try to schedule something with me during that time, I'm not going to do it. Now, there are a few times where I'll make exceptions if it's like a once a semester kind of thing. And I'll be like, okay, like a really I, great speaker or something. Yeah. Or I want to volunteer at the museum. So mm-hmm. it's like, that's going to happen next Friday. Um, so then I'll make the exception. But besides that, it's not happening. What's really important is also keeping up to date with the literature. And people have many different ways. I know Kaylee is looking tortured. There's a lot of different ways to do that. But I think one of the easiest ways I've found is to set up Google Alerts. So our Google Scholar Alerts. Mm-hmm. Or also Scopus. Just want to throw that in the, the ring. The, these show notes are going to be intense. We will link literally everything. Okay. Um, so for Google Scholar alerts, what you can do is you go to Google, Google Scholar and you can actually set up specific phrases that if they appear, specific words, if they appear in a new article that's come out that Google Scholar has indexed, you will get an email about it. Um, and so sometimes, I mean, I have word phrases that send me a lot of crap. (laughs) Um, And so if you find that, then you can get rid of those ones and make it a better phrase. Um, But that helps me so much keep on top of the literature. Now, the only problem with the Google Scholar alerts is that if you get these emails, you do need to actually go through them and figure out what papers are there and what you want to look at and what you don't. That could be like Um, a time block, though. It's like, you know, at the beginning of every week, you spend an hour and a half just going through. Oh, it's not that much time. Or I'm sorry. 20 minutes. I don't know. Yeah. My 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 boss does that. He actually gets those alerts uh-huh. and he gets them all sent to a folder. And then at the beginning of every month, he goes through that folder. So that's probably where I was getting the hour and a half because oh, okay. he spends a whole month collecting Did, literature. And is he actually reading it or is he actually seeing what is going to be useful in... He So he goes through the, the articles that are sent to him and he categorizes them into skim it. Mm-hmm. Because it's like an interesting idea or it might just be kind of conceptually helpful. And then, so that's one category. There's a share with the students category where Mm -hmm. he wants us to do it and report back to him. Mm -hmm. And because he thinks that like it's very helpful for our particular research. Mm -hmm. And then he has a spend a lot of time annotating, really deeply understanding it uh, category. Okay. So that's how he does that because he uses... um, he uses papers, which is just like a Zotero or an EndNote or a Mendeley mm-hmm. to help him kind of categorize that. Okay, that's that's super helpful because I think I, I do need a little bit more help there with how like what to do with these papers once I have them. Mm-hmm. Because what I've done is um, there's an app you can get called Pocket and it will... Um, and you can just download it to your phone and you can open a website basically and then save it to Pocket and then you can open it up in a web browser on your laptop later and then you can um, and then you can address whatever the heck you wanted to do with that website. So I use Pocket, and then I do spend time once a month with Pocket, and I go through it and make sure that I um, I know where I want to put things. Um, so Kaylee uh, just mentioned some citation managers, and citation managers are hugely helpful. So before citation managers, people had to to do all their citations by hand, which is a fucking waste of time. And it's really irritating and it takes, 
it just takes so much time. I had to do that for my master's. And um, I think paper citation software existed at that point, but I just didn't know how to use it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's I didn't really know. Yeah, it's really worth the time. So the two most popular free ones are Zotero and Mendeley. And we'll link both of those. And like our university has workshops with Zotero. So I can actually go and get some help setting it up in a way that's going to be useful for me. Um, but your university might have something else that they like. Or um, Zach and I were talking about this earlier. Uh, if you want to take that away, Zach. So make sure you're using the same citation software that your advisor uses. Oh. Particularly that, like, if I use Zotero, the database I produce is not compatible with InNote, that was what my advisor uses. So I have to make sure that we use the same software. That way, while we're writing, citations are managed properly, and I don't have to worry about them. Yeah, or for me, I use Zotero and my advisor, um, I actually don't know what he uses. Um, I think he was looking into Zotero as a, as a potential um, thing he might want to use. But I just tell him, you know, don't delete any of the references. If you don't want them, leave a comment. Um, and that has been, has been working for us. But I will link, um, because the internet is amazing, there's really a whole matrix of paper citation software comparisons. And you can see what works for you and what your friends might have experience with or what your advisor or might have experience with so one even just one might not work for you um so like our university provides us with endnote and i found for my personal like when i was writing my proposal endnote communicated a lot better with word in mm-hmm. terms of like making updates as i would like add a citation whereas zotero for me at the time was not as easy but i like zotero's format for mm-hmm. like my day-to-day um so there might need to be a combination and like on my ipad when i read papers i use an a, the papers app mm-hmm. um so it's a little annoying having things in three places but i have a very specific like use for them so like i'm never on endnote unless i have selected my papers that i'm going to use for my manuscript and then i only am like in endnote which helps me keep things just mentally separate mm-hmm. these are papers i'm just consuming versus papers i'm actually using um versus papers i'm in the middle of you know reading on the go. Mm-hmm. Um, so there may just need to be, you know, there may be a combination that works best for people too. Yeah. And, um, and knowing yourself will be very helpful too, yeah. because I know for myself, if I have more than one, I will just die. <laughs> I, I will lose track of stuff. Um, and I will like, I don't function well that way, but Kaylee is very high functioning in the organization, um, part of things. And I, uh, am not, I really struggle with kind of compliment each other organizationally. <laughs> we do. I'm a, we like to joke that Kaylee is type A and I am type B in terms of uh, personality types, <laughs> but, but I'm wearing off on you. You're becoming an AB. <laughs> A B plus, perhaps. Okay, and so the the very last thing for workflow is um, one of the the things I'm I'm most happy about is that I can make my own graphs in R and they look very nice and they are repeatable. So learning code early on um, could be really important for you. And, and there are ways in Excel to make really nice nice graphs. Um, so I'm, I'm not knocking on Excel. And if you know Excel well, then you might not want to waste time learning a programming language. Um, but for me, I started learning R uh, several years ago and being able to have control over graphs in that um in that program was really helpful for me. Mm -hmm. Not only that, but also analysis and just overall data management. Mm -hmm. And then of course, there's obviously a a ton of other programming languages, but I like R because it's really, really great for visualizations um, Mm -hmm. and graphs and all that. So um, after taking up all of that time, I will kind of back 
off from all those details of workflow and just say for me in general, what helps me uh, very much is planning ahead, which is why I made the timeline um, for the graduate students here um, in our department, because that helps me keep big timelines in mind. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's the common denominator, at least between what you and I and even Zach are saying, like, that's why we use calendars, because it helps Mm -hmm. us look at things from a broad perspective. That's why I send calendars to my PI at the beginning of every month, because we take these big steps back, which I think are super important. And you're really the champion of reminding us to have these big goals and look, taking a step back and being like, okay, what progress have you made on those big goals? And then the the last thing I do is whenever I'm feeling overwhelmed, which is frequent enough that I do this at least once a week, um, is I make lists. And and they're kind of to-do lists, but it's also just to get everything that's in my brain out onto paper. Because um, it, it might be in my calendar, but having it in a to-do list that I can actually mark things off is really helpful for me too. And it helps me plan out. Um, I do this for semesters, like what are my goals for the entire semester? And then I'll do monthly goals too. Like for January, I want to get this done. And then there's sometimes where you have control over that. Um, like my writing groups, I feel like I have a fair amount of control over how much time I spend in those. And then other times I don't have control. Like, uh, if we're doing, if I want to do lab work and something is not functioning right, or I forgot to order solvent in December. So we don't have solvent right now in my lab. Um, then, you know, that's kind of my bad and I can't really control all of the aspects of that. So I have to let it go, but it helps me just get things out of my brain and onto paper. So as a visual person, I can, I can see what's next. That's a hundred percent true. I was filling out my uh, individual developmental plan. Uh, NIH requires it now. Okay. Um, and one of the things that they said is it's really important for you to get your ideas out of your brain because your brain is really good at generating ideas. It's not good at holding on to them. Mm-hmm. And I read that as like, oh my gosh, that's like so true, right? <laughs> Especially because like we're being trained to think really deeply and like intricately. And now we're like also remember to like reach out to this person. Yeah. That's going to get so easily lost in the shuffle. So your advice to put things in a physical place where you can reference it is I think spot on. Yeah. And then overall, if you need help doing something um, or like... Zach's having trouble with the writing portion. And so he's taken steps, which I think is really great to make Tuesdays and Thursdays his writing time so that he's not disturbed. And then, you know, like I've already mentioned for me, I need to write outside of my lab, but I am not good at writing at home. So that's something I know about me. But you can have groups. So we have uh, writing groups, but then somebody else recently was like, hey, I want to find grants. So she decided to create a grant writing group where the first hour is looking for grants and second hour is writing outlines for those grants. So whenever you are trying to do something, see if other people want to do that too. And then you can meet up and maybe that will be enough to help you move forward with it. Accountability, buddy. The Mm -hmm. support group for this is really, really important. Otherwise, you'll never do it. So one thing that kind of ties in with what we've been talking about is this idea of deep work. And we've been really kind of scoodling around it (laughs) um, without, you know, calling it by name. So it's it's this concept of deep work versus shallow work. um, And it was originally coined, this this concept, uh, by Cal Newport in 2016. Uh, He wrote a book that basically talks about how he focuses on things. Um, So the idea of deep work exactly what you were saying before, Danny, uh, is when you're focusing without distraction, like you were saying in Dan Quintana's podcast, it's that concentrated work. It's the same thing that Cal is talking about is deep work, um, where you're, you're locked into doing something 
and you're refusing to like let go of it dog with a bone style like you really got to just dig in um and in this book um he talks about a couple of interesting things like task switching um and that results in something it just i like having words for things or like terms for things Mm -hmm. um which is why i'm bringing this up kind of in a somewhat redundant way um so when you when you task switch so when you go you're writing and you oh i'm just going to check this email really quick you result in something called attention residue where it takes time to get back into it, right? Yeah. And like, this is all a concept, I'm sure it's like not novel to hear about, but for me, just like having a word justifies it and like allows me to control it. Like, you know, it's like name your demons. So it's it's the idea of if you keep yourself in a state of persistent attention residue, you end up draining your brain really quickly because you're expending all this energy on just pulling yourself back into things. And so Cal discusses four rules of, helping you do deep work. And I'm sure they align very similarly with what Dan Quintana was talking about. Um, but two that he really, um, that I think are really common for people. Um, I was getting off of social media. Um, that's like a big drain, especially considering that's how a lot of us network now. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how we stay on in touch with people. That's how we keep our pulse on the latest and greatest. Uh, and that's really difficult. Um, so some people will just go and decide not to do social media, but Personally, I don't think that's an option for our generation um, long term. As Zach hangs his head because he's not on social media. (laughs) I mean, that could be anything from like just having a LinkedIn account to creating your website to being on Twitter daily. You know, it could be anything. But to not have any access to that, I think is it could be really difficult. Um, But because of these, again urgency effect going back to words that we're introducing to this podcast (laughs) you go on to twitter and you like oh you you get a little bit of a high because somebody maybe liked your post or you can retweet somebody and then you feel like oh i've accomplished something like i went on and i networked today um you can kind of you know justify these things and making yourself feel good about it Um, someone yeah someone liked my post so that's positive reinforcement so i'm gonna do it again yeah um you drug addict. <laughs> I mean, well, it, it is addictive, though. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was... Uh, so really just being, like I think, really aware of that um, and understanding that we can really be easily manipulated by social media. And in the book, Cal talks about the reason he officially, effectively started with Deep Work was because of this problem and how, um, because of this conversation, a lot of people have uh, become this... Apparently, there's a uh, digital minimalism movement uh, which just is kind of like time blocking your social media. Hmm. Um, so you only allow yourself between certain hours of the day to I'm go really on. good at that. <laughs> You're so good at it. You don't even have any hours. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I'm, can I ask a question about absolutely. the deep work stuff? Absolutely. Because I feel like with the workflow stuff I talked about before, it helps me be really efficient so that I can do a 40-hour work week because I'm spending time doing deep work in a way that means I don't necessarily have to spend eight hours a day writing. I can do two hours and then do other stuff. Mm-hmm. So does um, – what's this guy's name again? Cal Newport. Uh, does he talk about that at all? Like is, has it been shown that with deep work you can do more in the same amount of time? Yeah. In so less time? Yeah. So – I don't know if it's been like he has, I don't know if he has the numbers, but based on his theory and a couple of anecdotes that he presents in his, in, in the book, um, because if you do deep work, you do not have things like that attention residue. Um, the, you become more productive. So if you have eight hour work day, 
and you're constantly flipping between tasks, you end up losing a bigger chunk of that work day okay. to adjusting to making task switches. Yeah. Whereas if you focus for two hours, you're unlikely to have that level of work if you are switching back and forth. Mm-hmm. So if you were, even if you were to give yourself three hours, you would lose effectively an hour of that by attention switching, um, by not doing it as deep work. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. Okay. So that's one. Uh, another one. So that sometimes you know how when you start thinking about something and then all of your conversations start happening and people start giving you advice on this thing that you're working on or like you hear another podcast or read a book about things that are like relevant. Um, this has happened to me. So I was listening to a different podcast and they were talking about Randy Zuckerberg's Pick Three. Mm-hmm. Um, and the women on the podcast kind of had mixed reviews, but I think conceptually it's a really interesting idea. Um, so this was a New York times bestseller. And the theory is very simple. You have categories in your life and you pick three of them. So you set up five categories and you literally just pick three. I'm, I'm looking at Zach right now because he mentioned this in our bureaucracy episode. There are three points. You can only pick two. It's the, it's very similar to the triangle yeah. option. Yeah. So that was the very Pentagon. similar. <laughs> right. Um, and The five categories proposed in the book are work, which are projects you give time and get value, sleep, family, either you're given or you're chosen, friends, uh, which is she uses as a catch-all for pleasure activities, which is separate from work and family, and fitness, which is all areas of wellness. And the conversation from the podcast that I heard was these aren't really great categories for like the average person. Um, Randy Zuckerberg has like a lot of Facebook money. And so she's able to kind of delegate a lot of the necessary tasks, like clean your house. And also it's kind of obvious we're going to work and we're going to sleep. Mm-hmm. But one way that as a graduate student, we could adjust that is, okay, we have five categories of work. You know, we have writing, we have teaching, we have classwork, we have research, we have, I don't know, like mentoring or something. Um, and you, per day, it's not even like you don't pick three just forever, right? You, every day you decide that you're going to commit yourself to three of those things. Okay. And so like if you're like today is going to be a writing day or a mentoring day and a research day. Like I know my, my undergrad is going to come in, so I'm going to spend actual time with them today. Um, whereas like maybe I'm not going to spend time doing those other two tasks, but then you make up for it. And the big key to this is tracking it, which might be, you know, you might do it the way that I do it on an Excel sheet where you track which things so that you have a rotating schedule so that nothing gets stuck by the wayside. Um, and it gives you a really good broad view. So that's one thing I thought would be really interesting. Um, and I, I like that because it allows you to make these decisions kind of burden, like guilt-free. Like, well, nope, I picked these things today. And if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, can you help me with this thing? And you didn't pick it, you can be like, tomorrow. Yes. Tomorrow I've already delegated as a writing day. So yes, I will write. Or you know, if you want to consider editing as part of that, like, oh, well, sure, I will read your paper because that fits into my writing. Um, and that's also a really helpful way if you want to just, you know, just talking about it from a work perspective, help choose your time and not feel guilty about it. Yeah. Well, I think that's really cool because I, I think, you know, Zach talking about it um, in episode three, sure. <laughs> um, just well, kind of intuitively, ta- I mean, intuitively assigning those. And then with the idea of like some days have certain things, mm-hmm. um, 
um, we were just talking too about Zach and like Tuesdays and Thursdays are going to be your writing days now. So I think it's cool that a lot of these are um, kind of intuitive, but then we learn more about them and we can use them. Yeah, I think okay. these all kind of have a little bit of overlap because they're all based in a good idea, right? It's mm-hmm. all conscious use of time. Yeah. Yes, and I think one kind of mental switch you have to make is this is time management, not a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've seen it is like, I've always said it, like I sacrificed that third point of the triangle and I'm not going to do that. But in this point it's I'm going to manage that later so that I can do what I need to do today and manage mm. that time. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think the last thing, so this actually came up in a lab meeting um, originally, which kind of made me remember this. So There is a famous quote from Dwight Eisenhower uh, that says, what is important is seldom urgent, and what is urgent is seldom important. And this goes into play in what's called the Eisenhower box, where you draw a four-quadrant box, and we'll uh, include an image of this, where along the top, the first one says urgent, and then the second one, the first column says urgent, the second column says not urgent, and then the first row is labeled as important, and the second one is labeled as not important. And if you're having a hard time deciding on tasks, you know, like if you have a research day or you're looking at a long-term goal that you're trying to figure out where tasks fall um, or even just responding to tasks as they come into your, you know, somebody sends you an email. It's like, hey, I actually need this really last minute. And it's somebody you can't really say no to. It helps you really keep track of where your things, where things lie. So in our lab, we um, kind of redid the traditional box. So the traditional box says that things are both important and urgent you need to do today. Things that are important but not urgent you have to schedule a time to do in the future. Things that are urgent but not important you find someone else to do for you if you can. Um, And things that are neither urgent or not important you must delete. And really just you need to really like assess if you don't think it's urgent or important it needs to not be on your plate right now. And so in the lab, we kind of came up with a new system where we're aiming for our projects to be in the important but not urgent category. So instead of, you know, where we're scheduling it out, but that's really where we want our projects to be. We don't want to be responding last minute because that's a stressful environment oh, yeah. for research. Is like, mm-hmm. oh crap, I need this figure for this Uh, publication that's going out or for this grant that my PI is writing. Like I have to suddenly do this and drop everything. It's really stressful. So we're not aiming to have our tasks be in that box. We're aiming for them to be important tasks, but not urgent. Um, And then he was, uh, another thing we talked about is if they're urgent tasks, but not super important at the moment, like a meeting that came up last minute, you know, Mm -hmm. it might not be considered very, very important to you, but you have to be there. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are draining tasks. Those are things that take away from your time And so we're trying not to have a lot of things there. You know, we're trying to schedule our meetings where they are not urgent. We know about them in the future um, and they're not reactionary. And then also we concurred with the traditional Eisenhower box that things that are neither urgent or important should not happen. I think when we did it, my PI just wrote a giant X in that box. It's like, nope, tasks don't go there. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, it's a really interesting um, concept. I'm going to try to implement it this semester um, to help me because I have a really bad problem with, I receive tasks and then I immediately do them. Yeah. Um, whereas I think it's it's kind of taking your your list idea, but for me, like categorizing them, which helps me respond to them better, um, rather than like if I just because I've I've done the list thing, but mm-hmm. I just will pick and choose the things I want to do. Yeah. Um, so if I can put them in these boxes, 
every, you know, as I receive them, then it'll help me a not feel bad about doing them later. Cause I know they're written down. I know they'll get done. But then I like the things that actually need to get done will yeah. like, no, Kayla, you have to run this Western today. Yeah. Like that's in an, ur- like, it's not great that it's urgent, but like it's today it has become urgent mm-hmm. because I moved it from my not urgent to my urgent for today list. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Brooke talks a lot about um, swallowing the frog. Yeah. Which is a phrase I never heard before her, but she swears other people know it. Um, (laughs) um, But it's the idea that if there's a list of things that you're supposed to do, Mm -hmm. just start with the one that you don't want to fucking do because it still has to get done. Mm -hmm. So just do it and then it'll be so like such like a relief and it'll be so great. And then doing the rest of the stuff won't be as bad. But just getting that first thing off the plate, the one that you don't do that you've been avoiding for perhaps weeks. Yeah. Just get her done. Yeah. You know, like for me, it's writing, which is why I'm glad that writing groups are in the morning time. Because I'm like, oh, I'm just going to do it. Mm-hmm. going to do it. Yeah. Um, but that's also, you know, in the swallow the frog, I, the first time it came up is when I was doing proposals and I was not working on them like I should have been. And it was so nice to have an accountability buddy for that. So I was talking about having an accountability buddy, but sometimes you have so many things that you just cannot have somebody who's helping you keep track of your shit. Mm -hmm. Like that's just not, I think, fair to ask people. But like to have the swallow the frog tasks, have an accountability buddy, then like you can tell someone, hey, this is going to be the task that I'm really going to struggle with. And so you celebrate even harder. Like I remember I sent you guys a picture of me like, finished my first article and it was such an achievement and you guys were like so happy and so proud (laughs) of me doing like the thing it's like dumb because like obviously I need to do it yeah but just like get that like overjoy made me feel so good that like okay I really did do it like I can just keep doing it even though it's like obnoxious it shouldn't have been celebrated that much but just acknowledging like this was hard for me Mm -hmm. it was really hard for me to have to start this and just getting the feedback from others being like, we know. Yeah. And we are so happy that you did this. Yeah. And a lot of times too, once you get over that hump of doing whatever that one thing was that you really didn't want to, sometimes it doesn't even take that long and it was just irritating and now it's done. Like Brooke in writing group yesterday, she was like, okay, this whole thing is going to take me two hours and that's my goal for today. And I said, okay. And then like during our break for after the first 50 minutes, she was like, so that actually ended up only taking me five minutes wow yeah and I was like okay so you're not getting a check mark today because you're not you how did you not know that was going to take only five minutes but it's because she'd been avoiding it and it Um, becomes this beast yeah I didn't give her a check mark I'm bad (laughs) thank you so much for listening next time we'll be talking about life parenting partnerships and death with Brooke Will and Danny you can find us on Twitter at STEM Culture, one word, or email us at stemculturepodcast at gmail.com. If you like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes to help other people find us. Please do that. We don't have any ratings yet. Love you. <laughs> if you'd like to support us, you can find our Patreon on our website, plus our show notes, like the copious show notes that will exist for today, articles to stimulate, and links to our YouTube channel for transcribed shows at www.stemculturepodcast.com. Until next time, don't forget to consensually hug a grad student or at least buy them coffee. Sort of thing. If you can name it. Beezlebub. (laughs) Jamathy. It's not a real Lucifer. Okay, better. That's a fallen angel. That's fine. Gurgle Sledge. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I don't know what he did. (laughs) My brother.
No, Helen, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> She's not sorry. Look at her face. She does that. We'll delete that. <laughs>